If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Never standing down for my podcast watch. This is Ken Levine with another episode of Hollywood and Levine. Thanks so much for being here. And this week, it's just going to be me. No guests this week. I couldn't get the Zoom to work. But instead, I'm going to do another one of those free association podcasts. I did this a number of weeks ago. And you people seem to like it, and it's kind of easy for me since I don't have to prepare anything other than the first story I want to talk about. And the way this works is I just kind of riff and go from topic to topic until I run out of room. So we're going to try that again this week. And we're going to start with the Emmy nominations that came out last week. And yeah, there's the pandemic and all, but I can't ever remember a year when there was less buzz about the Emmys. And not just talking around the water cooler, since you can't talk around the water cooler anymore, but even on social media, even emails going back and forth, it just seems like the Emmys this year are just a complete meh, a complete non-story. And it kind of makes sense because... There are so many categories now, so many shows, so many actors that you've never heard of. And I also remember when the best comedies were shows that were funny. And I look at this list and Dead to Me is included. Now, Dead to Me, I'm not saying it's a bad show. It's not a comedy. It's not at all funny. And Christina Applegate got nominated for Best Comedic Actress. She's not at all funny in that show. She's funny in other things, but not in that particular show. Well, obviously, there's a lot of snubs. That happens every year. But, you know, in the old days, there used to be 40 shows. Now there's 4,000 shows. So it stands to reason that there's going to be more snubs. I found it interesting that Jennifer Aniston was nominated for The Morning Show, but her co-star, Reese Witherspoon, was not. And Reese Witherspoon also was in two other series and was not nominated for anything. To me, the only snub that bothered me was The Good Fight on CBS All Access. Now, I'm sure part of the problem is no one. No one has signed up for CBS All Access. I did because I like The Good Fight, and I'm now going to dump it because there's nothing else on CBS All Access. What, I'm going to watch episodes of Kevin Can Wait? Yeah. 
So um, the the goodbye got robbed because that really, really, really was a terrific show. I also wonder what will the ceremony even look like this year? Because I assume it's not going to be at the Kodak Theater. You can't really hold it in a theater. So is it everybody on their Zoom cameras at home? So are all of the women going to get all dressed up just to sit in their den and be on camera for the four seconds that they're nominated or the minute and a half that they're presenters? So I'm kind of curious as to what that is going to look like. I mean, truly, what is even the point of holding the ceremony if you can't have after parties? I mean, the whole reason for doing this is after parties. And that brings me to the Golden Globes. And I don't know what they're going to do next year on the Golden Globes because the only reason that they would get stars to appear at the Golden Globes was because they fed them and they liquored them. And by the time the show is on the air, most of these people are smashed. It is a big party at someone else's expense. Now, if the foreign press can't even provide that, then I don't even know what the heck they're doing it for. You may have a lot of stars who will pass this year. And what they might have to do is something they did on the People's Choice Award way back in 1983 when I won a People's Choice Award, and that is tell the winners in advance. That's right. We were told in advance of Cheers that we had won for the best new show. The reason they did that is otherwise nobody would show up for this thing. So to make sure that at least the winners were there to give an acceptance speech, we were told in advance. And they might have to do that with the Golden Globes. Now, what is it like winning an Emmy? I told this story way back on the very first podcast episode, but I now have to assume, since we are four years into this, and this is like episode 186, that uh, maybe a few of you have not heard this story. So I'm going to repeat it. It's what it's like to win an Emmy. And this happened for me and David for the first year of Cheers, David being my partner, David Isaacs. And we're sitting there and the presenters come out. And this year, the theme for the Emmys was vintage television. People who you've never heard of unless you're 80. So the presenters for the best comedy award, and I don't know why they got chosen to be the best comedy (laughs) presenters were Arthur and Catherine Murray. Now, I'm just going to pause for a second while you go, who the hell are they? Well, they were a dance team. And for many years, they had a television show where they gave dance instructions. Like I said, early days of television. And so they were television personalities. When they came out, and this is true, everyone in my section, and I assume this happened throughout the auditorium, but everyone in my section, we're all looking at each other going, are they, wait, they're still alive? 
that's really them? They looked like they were 95 then, and for all we know, they were. So they do the introduction, and they read the list of nominees, and Catherine Murray opens the envelope and goes, and the winner is... And I went, what? And it was only when I then heard our theme song that I realized, oh, shit, it's us. We won. So we run up onto the stage, and those were the days when everyone could still give brief speeches. So David and I are up there with Glenn and Les Charles and Jimmy Burroughs. And when it comes time for me to give my speech, I walk up there, and I knew it had to be very short because if it was long, then 20 million people who don't know me would hate me in the same way that I hate these people that just go on and on and think they're trainers and think they're third-grade teachers. It's like, get off the stage already. So I knew to keep it brief. And I'm looking out at this sea of faces in the auditorium, and there are all these resentful looks of people who didn't win, and now I'm standing up there. And I gave my speech, and it was very, very brief. I thank my wife and my son and uh, people who loved me or whatever. I don't know. It was probably 10, 15 seconds, really, really quick. And people say, well, so what was going through your mind when you're standing up there giving acceptance speech for a big award? And I will be very honest with you. This is what was going through my mind. Years before, I had to go into basic training. This was 1970. I was at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, which is in the top of the Ozarks in the winter. It was miserable. It was just miserable. And I was the worst soldier ever. I could do a whole episode on just what an inept soldier I was. And needless to say, everyone else in our platoon thought that I was a a complete idiot. And I was thinking to myself when I was standing up there holding that statuette, I wonder how many guys from Delta 5-2 are watching the Emmys and seeing me and going, him, that guy, that guy. That was what was going through my head when I won the Emmy. So now you walk off stage. What happens? First of all, you take a picture with your presenters And I have, proudly, right here in my office, I turned the microphone so that you could see it, a picture of me and David and Glenn and Les Charles and Jimmy Burroughs and Arthur and Catherine Murray. Like I said, it's displayed very proudly. And you then sign a big board. All of the winners sign this big board. And then a PR person latches on to you and takes you into interview rooms. And first you go to, like, national TV, and then you go to national radio, and then you go to magazines and newspaper, whatever. You're in each room for about five, six minutes. 
cameras are flashing, light bulbs are going off, people are asking you the same questions. And you can only be there for like about four or five minutes because the next winners are right behind you. I remember looking to my right and seeing Stephen Bochco and all of the guys from Hill Street Blues. They had won for Best Drama. And so they were in the room that we had just vacated. So we go from room to room to room to room. We just follow this person. And then she points to a door and we walk through the door and the door slams behind us and we're now in the alley. We're now outside in the alley and it's a thousand degrees because it's the end of August or beginning of September in Pasadena. And right next to us is a giant garbage bin with flies buzzing around it. We're trying to get back in and the door's locked. So here we are, picture us, five schmucks in tuxedos holding Emmys, and we now have to walk the length of the theater to get back into the auditorium. And just when we get to the front, we look over and we see all of the Hill Street Blues guys are now in the alley looking at each other like, what the hell do we do? And we're going, guys, over here, over here, follow us. So that is what it is like to win an Emmy. Uh, You're doted on, uh, you know, all these interviews. It is your moment of fame and glory. And the next minute, bam, you're in an alley (laughs) standing with a bunch of flies. That is what it is like to win an Emmy. And Stephen Bochco. Okay, I think back to another award ceremony when we were at the same table as Stephen Bochco and his wife, Barbara Boson. This was for the Writers Guild Awards. And David and I had been nominated for a show called Open All Night. And this was a show that lasted 13 weeks and was gone by the time that the award ceremony took place. So usually a show will buy a table and all of the producers and writers, nominees, etc. will fill that table. Well, the company had been disbanded that made Open All Night. So David and I just had to get a table somewhere. And so they sat us with the Hill Street Blues people. And uh, my wife and I, are the first to sit down between the four of us, David and his girlfriend, he wasn't married at the time, had yet to arrive. And we're meeting all of the people at Hill Street Blues and they're saying, you're here for what? And we said, well, we're, we're nominated for Open All Night. We're going, what's, what's Open All Night? We've, we've never heard of Open All Night. Well, actually, yeah, it really, it really was a show. So now my partner and his girlfriend arrive. My partner sits down next to Barbara Boson. So it's my partner David, then Barbara Boson, and then Stephen Bochco. David starts chatting with her. If you might remember that Barbara Boson was a series regular on Hill Street Blues. And David goes, um, so what do you do? Well, right away, that's like an E.F. Hutton moment everyone shuts up at the table to hear this because we all know this has got to be good. And Barbara says, I'm an actress. 
Oh, I should mention this first. David sat down and was effusive to how much he loved Hill Street Blues. So she says she's an actress. And David says, oh, really? Have I seen you in anything? And she says, yeah, I'm a fucking regular on Hill Street Blues. Well, that was it. The table just erupted. And it was probably the biggest laugh of the night. (laughs) By the way, um, we lost. Open All Night was a show that was created and uh, show run by Tom Patchett and Jay Tarsus. They are two of my favorite people. And it's not just because they gave us our first staff job, which they did. But Patchett and Tarsus originally were a a comedy team. They would do stand-up routine. They became writers, and they were the showrunners of the Bob Newhart show during its best, nuttiest seasons. They're two really inventive, funny men. Then they went to the Tony Randall show, and both of those were at MTM. And MTM at this time... This was the glory days of MTM. It was like Camelot for writers. At the time, you had the Mary Tyler Moore show, you had Rhoda, you had Phyllis, you had the Bob Newhart show, you had the Tony Randall show, they had a couple of other things, I think Doc and uh, a couple of other shows, but it was comedy mecca, and we're now talking the mid to late 70s. And That was the place David and I wanted to work the most. I mean, we would drive by the lot on Radford in the San Fernando Valley, and we would be calling out, we're coming, Mary, we're coming, Mary. We we would kill to actually get an assignment and work on an MTM show. It was the gold standard. It It was the Yankees. It was the 1990 Chicago Bulls. So we get an assignment on the Tony Randall show. We turn in our script. We get a call from Jay. Jay goes, uh, and Jay was always underplaying everything. And Jay goes, uh, yeah, guys, uh, yeah, we liked your script. Uh, Come on in uh, Tuesday. We got a couple of notes for second draft. I said, oh, okay, great. Glad you liked it. He goes, yeah, yeah, we did. Um, You guys want to work here? We said, what? He goes, yeah, you guys want to come on staff? You figure when the call comes, when you're being called up to the Yankees, it's a big moment. Instead, it was like, you guys want want to work here? And we're like, uh, yeah, sure. And he goes, all right, well, then have your agent call us, and uh, I'll see you in a week or so. And that's how we got our, our first staff job. And interestingly, we joined the show, and the first episode they're going to film that week was our script. Now, they had just had a week's hiatus prior to this because multi-camera shows would usually film in groups of three they'd film three episodes then take a week off three more week off etc etc so they had just had 
a week off. So we meet Tony Randall, who, for those who don't really know who Tony Randall was, since he's no longer with us, but uh, if you ever see The Odd Couple TV show, he was Felix Unger. Very funny, very talented man. So we're all sitting around the table, and before we start, Tony stands up and he says, "Um, I would like to say something before we begin. I spent the last week in London. And while I was in London, I got a chance to watch some of the British situation comedies. And after watching four or five of those British comedies, I can say without reservation that comedies in the U.S. are shit. And then he sits back down, and then it's like, okay, uh, let's begin uh, the Tony Randall Show, Franklin versus McClellan by Ken Levine and David Isaacs. That was our introduction <laughs> to the show. Tony was great, though, and he told a story. I don't think I've ever told this, certainly not publicly, but Tony told us a story one time, just standing around the stage, that when he was a young actor, he would spend his summers at the Catskills working in resorts. And what would normally happen is a group of actors would go up to Grossinger's or one of those, and they would be waiters during the day, and at night they would perform these shows. So Tony was talking about the fact that most of the time these families would come up and on Sunday night, the husbands would drive back into the city because they had to work all week and the wives would be alone until Friday night when the husbands returned. And Tony said, and as a result of that, you could get laid any time by anybody. It was fish in a barrel. And we're like, wow, sounds great. And he goes, how many times do you think I got laid that summer? And we're all looking at each other like, oh, God, how do we answer this? So we, uh, 40 times, 50, 61 He goes, not once. I was an actor. (laughs) Okay, you were also a schmuck. I had no summer camp when I was growing up. Because I grew up in Los Angeles. We didn't have summer camps. My summer camp was I would sit in my room and try to draw comic books. And my mother would yell at me to go outside. That That was summer camp. Eventually, my parents figured, well, let's get him in the Cub Scouts. Let's get him to do something. So they put me in the Cub Scouts. And the way the Cub Scouts worked, probably to this day, but way back then, is that the mothers would rotate who would be the den mother. 
He would be the den mother for a month. And we would meet like, I don't know, twice a month, Friday afternoons from three to six, something like that. And the den mother would be the one preparing all of the activities. I love my mother. My mother was just a great, great person. You would love my mother. But she was not the den mother type. She kept putting it off. She kept moving it back, trading with people and pushing it and pushing it and pushing it until there was the point when there was nobody left and she was the only one left who could be a den mother. And she got out of it. How did she get out of it? We moved. (laughs) She did not want to be a den mother. (laughs) That's not the reason that we moved. Not exactly. But we moved from Reseda, which is in the West San Fernando Valley, back into an apartment on the west side of Los Angeles. Same thing, you know, no summer camp and same thing. Go outside and do what? Do what? There's like a city street here. What the hell am I going to do? Here's one thing that I did. And I'm reminded of this by uh, a Facebook group uh, about vintage West Los Angeles of that time and some photographs are posted and there was a photograph of the big town market that was on Pico Boulevard. This was like five, six blocks from my house. And at the time, this was like 1959, 1960, my mom became friends with one of the clerks at the big town market and worked out a deal so that I could go and buy a carton of cigarettes for my mom. Okay, I'm a little kid. Okay, I'm a little kid. And I can just imagine, you know, the the looks today. Back then, no one batted an eye. But here I am, this little kid. I'm walking down Pico Boulevard, which is a big commercial street, lots of stores and things, and lots of cars going by. And I've got a carton of Kent cigarettes under my arm. That seemed to be okay back then. My parents were into bowling. As I remember also passing a bowling alley when I would go to the big town market. And so my parents were in bowling leagues. Bowling was very big back in that period. And we had a babysitter who was a teenage girl, probably 16, 15, 16, 17, probably still in high school. And at the time, American Bandstand was on Saturday nights on ABC, like at 7.30. And I would watch American Bandstand with this babysitter. God, I wish I knew her name. My little brother was already in bed, so it was just me and the babysitter. And the babysitter was very funny and was just taking shot after shot at these dancers and the singers and and everybody. And I loved it. And I got into it too. And so I can I can thank this person. I have no idea who she is, but I can thank her for learning snark. 
And let's see, what else can I think of of my days on Sherborne Avenue? Oh, yes, the Dodger Club. It's 1959. Again, I'm like nine years old. The Dodgers are in their second year in Los Angeles, and it proved to be a great year. They wound up winning the World Series in 1959. But along with some other friends we decided to start a Dodger club. And what we would do, Dodger games back in those days started at 8 o'clock at night. We would get together at like 7 o'clock and we would trade baseball cards and talk baseball. And then at 7.30, the Dodger pregame show would begin with Vin Scully and Jerry Doggett. And we would listen to that all the way through. Then... It would be the start, just before the start of the game, they had the National Anthem. And back in those days, on the radio, they played the National Anthem. We stood up. All of us stood up for the National Anthem. Then we sat down. They said, play ball. And we listened to the first inning. And then we were called to bed and... That was it for the club that night. (laughs) However, I and I'm sure most of the other club members had our transistor radios and we would be lying in bed with the radio at our ear listening to the Dodger game long into the night. When I think of national anthems, I think back to my year as a broadcaster for the Baltimore Orioles. One time I was in the PR director's office and there was a big box of cassettes. When people sing the national anthem at ballparks, oftentimes you wonder, well, how'd they find this guy? How'd they find her? And I can't speak for every franchise But most of them, if you want to sing the national anthem at Wrigley Field or Dodger Stadium or Camden Yards, you call the team and you say, how do I go about applying? And they say, submit a tape of you singing the national anthem. This was a box of all of the people who had sent in audition tapes to sing the national anthem for an Orioles game. I said, can I take this home tonight and listen? I promised to bring it back. I said, sure, go ahead. And I did. Oh my God. You've seen those horrible first rounds of American Idol. Well, imagine that with people singing the world's most difficult song. One was more hysterical than the next. One would try to do it operatic. Another would try to be Frank Sinatra, you know, kind of rat pack, finger snapping. It was a hilarious comedy bit. And I only wish that I had 12 of the worst ones. I should have stashed them. I'm an idiot. I should have just stashed them. But I wish I had those that I could play on a podcast because I guarantee you it would be 
the funniest podcast ever. And my final national anthem story is actually is actually something that Elaine Boozler talks about in one of her stand-up routines. She said that she sang the national anthem once at Shea Stadium for the Mets. And, of course, when you're on the field and you're on the PA system, there is that lag time between your singing and when it comes back through the speaker. And she said... (laughs) So she was trying to speed up her singing to hopefully catch up with the lag time. That must have been absolutely hilarious. Elaine and I, by the way, are friends. Looking at the clock here, yeah, this is pretty much going to kill a half hour or so. I will just mention this in closing, that comedy writers and comedians who write their own material like to have various exercises, various ways of just kind of getting your mind to work. And for a while, Elaine and I used to have this challenge back and forth. What it was, was this. We each had a copy of the LA Times. I would go through and I would isolate a sentence any sentence in the middle of an article, like it's time to get your eyes checked, whatever the sentence was. And usually it was just basically a nondescript sentence. I would send that to Elaine, and Elaine would have to use that sentence as a setup and then write a punchline to that setup. And then she would give me a sentence, and I would have to do it as well. And we would do that back and forth and back and forth till she had to go out on the road and actually make a living doing this. But it was a great exercise, again, in just getting you to think comedically. And that will do it for a Free Association podcast. I know you liked the first time. I hope you liked this time as well. Uh, next week... Come back next week because it's a wacky episode. Oftentimes when you're doing interviews, you hope that the people are famous enough that they will have a following. For example, last couple of weeks, I had Debbie Gibson, and I'm sure I got a lot of new people who discovered the podcast who were fans of Debbie Gibson. And followed her on social media. And when she said, come listen to the podcast, they did. And hopefully four or five of them enjoyed it and are coming back. Well, this is a disc jockey who I'm going to interview next week. He has absolutely zero followers. He has been doing it. For 45 years, 45 years, and he is not talking to anybody. (laughs) Yeah, sounds pretty interesting, doesn't it? 
He is. It's a very interesting guest and a very fun show. So that's next week. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, Bruce and Jason Miller. If you would like to get in touch with me via email, let me know what you think of these free association podcasts. They're really fun to do. I hope they're as much fun for you listening. Uh, Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. I'm on Twitter at Ken Levine. I'm on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. As always, I'd love a, uh, a five-star review and a review in um, iTunes. Please tell your friends. Please subscribe. That's all I got to push this week. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. Wear a mask. I'll see you next week. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.